Welcome to Beyond Dollars and Cents. My name is Holland Henderson, financial advisor with Allen & Company, and this is the Risk and Reward Podcast. Today, very close and special uh, guest, well, close geographically and as a friend, I think. Oh, how kind. Yeah, Chris Hammond. How's it going, man? Good. Thank you for having me today. So um, when we planned this podcast, um, you know, I always like to do what I what we call the rundown with Chris Hammond, and I get very excited, and then markets just start going even more crazy than they have been here recently. So I think now is an apropos time that we talk about that stuff. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's easy to kind of ride through the market when the seas are calm and when things are generally going up. Yes. Um, and then, you know, when things get choppier and particularly a lot of red numbers start showing up on the page, whether that's an individual stock or an overall portfolio or whatever that may be, um, you know, there, there's a lot more attention drawn to something. And so, you know, I look forward to us kind of unpacking a couple of the topics of the day and, you know, see, see what uh, thoughts we can provide everybody. What's the chances we solve all the problems for this one podcast? I don't know. I, I don't know that I can promise anything. On a, you know, <laughs> You're not allowed yeah. to promise anything on this podcast. That is for let's, sure. Let, let's go with we'll shoot for very high. <laughs> very good. All right. First, we have to cover the more important things, um, the NFL draft. How do we feel about it? I think uh, if if anyone has listened to kind of this series of, of podcasts that we've done over, I don't know, the last year, uh, they, they'll know I'm a big Georgia Bulldog fan. So from that extent, I would say it was a, it was a 10 out of 10 draft. I think we had was it five or six defensive players go in the first round and a couple more set the record at least since the 70s or 80s in terms of number of players drafted from one team. So go dogs. So we have officially solidified the 30 for 30 for last year's University of Georgia team, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, eventually that's got to be in the works. Yeah. Because they did it for Miami. They've done it. I mean, we're st I'm st as a Gator fan, I'm still waiting yep. for the Gators, Tim Tebow era. Yeah. Uh, 30 for 30, but I think y'all have solidified your, the chances that that's going to get produced. The best kind of what-if thought that I heard was imagine a world where Georgia didn't win the national championship, and then you have five guys go in the first round and whatever it was, 11 or something like that, drafted overall. Mm -hmm. Imagine if you had that and they didn't win the national championship. I mean, all the narratives, however untrue they'd be of, you know, Kirby can't coach. He got out coached by Nick Saban again. Well, Nick Saban's probably the greatest of all time. So yes. that's, that's not saying a whole lot. But right. um, I mean, can you imagine the consternation on all the message boards and in the, you know, the Paul Feinbaum show on ESPN and whatnot if they hadn't if they hadn't gotten it done? But, but to be honest with you, as an SEC fan, right, and a Gator fan, again, I will keep repeating that because we talk about, uh, you know, since you've been on here, Georgia a lot. I don't want to talk about it much, but it would be a very <laughs> Georgia thing to do to not wish win the national championship and then send that many people out to the NFL. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're getting paid, so you know that that should bode well for future recruiting. I, I think. Am, so immediately, I try and turn as much as I possibly can to an investment right type of mindset. And I and I sat there and thought as I watched the draft, if you could buy stock in this team, that would have been interesting, mm -hmm. right? If you could buy stock, I mean, obviously you could bet online or whatever, but that, that thing would have been to the moon. Yeah. yeah. If you could trade, you know, rights on future players is earnings or of the uh, of the media rights, if those were publicly available to trade, that there would have been some nice appreciation on those. You know, I think the the broader like, okay, let, let's talk about these these players and how they are investing in in themselves and ultimately driving. You know, Kirby Smart. We'll talk about Georgia. Since I'm the Georgia fan, and Florida has less to share right now. Right. Um, you know, one of the things he's preached is they rotate a ton of guys on defense, yeah. and so they've really never had. You know, at least in the last five or six years he's been the coach, they haven't had that one star player. 
um, that just dominates all over the field. You got to know where he is. You got to double team him. They're playing, you know, you play 11 guys at a time, but they'll play 19, 20, 21, 22 guys. And so they had guys that were backups. Yeah. That were top three draft picks. And so I think in terms of his methodology for this is the way I want to run my team, I need these great athletes to come in here. Being able to showcase to those guys that you don't have to be a starter every single year in order to get drafted high. Yeah. I mean, Jermaine Johnson was a Florida State guy who played at Georgia and got developed by Georgia after going to JUCO. He He's the ACC sack leader because he's not getting enough playing time at Georgia, and he still goes right there in the same group. So, you know, in a way they had – he might have been a first-round pick. I mean, that they might have had seven guys that were at one time on the roster in the first round. So, so uh, top two winners, top two losers as far as teams are concerned. Oh gosh, I think um, who reached for that USC wide receiver? Do you know who I'm talking about in the first round? Oh gosh, I'm was not... it was it out west? I don't no, know. We might have pa- to listen, up on that. The, between the you called me cold on that one. Yeah, I think I did. the Giants had a nice draft. Um, yeah. From from what I recall, I think they took a couple of Georgia guys. The, too, the so. clear losers to me were um, were the Patriots, right, yeah. and the Cowboys. I yeah. mean, I just it was very, and I have to say, Bill Belichick is not necessarily making an argument for we could have done it without Brady, which is just amazing. As not a Brady fan until he came to Tampa, you know that's it's just an interesting thing to look at. But I mean, the the draft was. Overall, it was very interesting just for from who was taken, quarterbacks and the placements, you know, and, and the amount of linemen and defense. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. It was the perfect draft for a lot of defense with no kind of superstar quarterbacks available. I know Kenny Pickett went to Pittsburgh, so they got Big Ben part two. He did you know, he plays in the same stadium uh, as a pit guy. So so that'll be that'll be interesting. Mm. Atlanta. That's who took it. Drake London out of USC with Atlanta. So okay. I feel like Atlanta is, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of Georgia Atlanta crossover. <laughs> I'm a Kansas City Chiefs fan, but um, you know, Atlanta's got some time ahead of them probably before they contend again. Well, I cannot wait until football season rolls around. I am enjoying hockey right now, not as much as I did the last two years, but uh, we'll see where that goes in the next couple of days. All right, let's go ahead and take our first break, and we'll be right back. And we're back with Chris Hammond. Lots of topics to talk about. Let's go ahead and start with inflation. Yep. That's where we, that's, I think that's a good place to start. Absolutely. So it's timely as of the date of this recording. We just got a CPI report, which we get once a month that kind of says, okay, month over month in the last 12 months, what has inflation be or been, excuse me. And, you know, the answer is the highest since the 1980s. Um, you know, I think inflation's running, you know, maybe back in March, it was 8.3% year over year. Now it's 8.1%. What are the main drivers of that? Um, fuel, food, and housing are probably the three main uh, components in terms of the really large portions of consumer spending, and they've increased significantly. Right here in the short term, like this report we just got, airfare, you know. The F, uh, I guess be the FAA or the CDC said you don't have to wear a mask on a plane anymore. And I was talking to Laura Holly, who's an advisor in our office, and she said she was actually shopping for a plane ticket uh, on the moment that all of that news came out. And within 30 minutes, fares had shot up 50%. Mm. And so that's going to take a little bit of time to normalize. I think everybody understands that there's going to be more demand for planes. So taking that out a little bit. You know, here, here's the good news. Um, a lot of the research that we look at um, suggests that the year-over-year comparisons should start to go down. They've actually begun to go down, even just slightly. And so, you know, we're on a glide path now to a more normal environment. 
the primary questions now facing investors, economists, Americans are, what does that reaching normal look like? Is that a 2% or a 1.5% like we became accustomed to from 2011 to 2019? Or is that a 3% or 3.5%? And how long does it take us to get there? Because, you know, the reality is paying 425 at the pump isn't, isn't an enjoyable experience. And the other thing that is really important to think about when it comes to inflation, saying inflation's going back to where it was is not saying prices are going back to where they were. Right. It's saying the rate of growth of prices from where they're at today is going to slow down dramatically. Right. And so, you know, saying we're going to be in a more normal inflation environment isn't saying gas is going to be 250 again. It's saying it's less likely that they're going to go from 425 to 550 yeah. in, in Florida. They were probably already there in some other states like California. But um, that's an important thing to kind of wrap your mind around as you think about what inflation does from here. Yeah, and that's the reason why we're feeling such the, the burn right now, because you have supply and demand issues, right? And then um, competition issues, which are going to drive price as well. So as far as what Biden had to say yesterday, did you glean anything from that of, of giving you any you know, any direction of, of where they're heading other than just dependence on the Fed. Yeah. So the executive office has relatively little control over what inflation is. Um, I will say this, and I think this is from when we recorded our last podcast or where we were looking at coming into 2022 or late in 2021, this is where the primary changes come. Inflation is now the number one concern on most consumers' minds in the midterms or this November. Yes. And so Joe Biden, even if he, President Biden, even if he cannot do anything about it, he's going to be talking about it. And the chairman of the Federal Reserve, which is Jay Powell, was nominated last fall. So he, he has a term to serve. So he's not subject to the whims of the president. But at the end of the day, he's there to, to fulfill the goals of the executive office for the economy and to contain the Fed's mandate of stable inflation and low unemployment over time. The Fed said throughout last year that inflation was transitory, which still may prove to be the case. It was certainly less transitory than, than many expected and the Fed expected. Yeah, it's been here a while <laughs> and it's been increasing a while. Um, but basically, the Fed's ability to wait out inflation became next to nothing. And, you know, I think the invasion of the Ukraine led to a, a steep focus on that because it complicated and made worse some things that were probably poised to get better. So if you look at some other parts of inflation, used cars have started to go down. Even the housing market with interest rates higher, you know, I've at least seen anecdotally a couple notifications from, you know, Zillow or Redfin or some of these online uh, groups that will shoot you house listings. And we're not in the market, but I've seen price dropped. You didn't see a price drop notification for 18 months on housing, certainly in, in our market. And so some of those things in terms of buying goods, whether that's furniture, furnishings, refrigerators, all those things have started to peak and, and maybe even come down in price a little bit. But now we have this complicated backdrop of food's going to be harder to get and more costly to get. Gasoline's going to be harder to get and more costly to get. And that's caused the Fed to react a lot more to inflation than it had previously last year. So even if they, even if the Fed continues to raise rates, which it looks like they're going to, how much are they going to really be able to control inflation or tamper down the yep. growth of inflation if the government continues to spend money? And you know, what, what does that look like? Yep. So that's that's the other important kind of piece of the pie. So if we could all go back in time. I think a, a wide majority of economists would agree that we should not have done the final stimulus payment. 
um, which was, I'll just say, a couple trillion dollars. I don't, I don't have the exact number, but it included stimulus checks as well as some of the initial build back better agenda uh, just in the first days of the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. That proved too much. There was too much money put into the system. Brian Westbury has talked about that in terms of money supply expanded too large. And that may have been kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. There is zero willingness in Washington between the legislative and the executive branch to cut spending. Yeah. It's more a question of whether spending grows at a higher rate. Um, so the fact that not much is getting done there is maybe a slight positive to inflation in terms of you're not going to see this massive expansion of fiscal spending. Uh, if you go back to the last period of a significant inflationary period that didn't slow down for a long time, you had the Great Society with LBJ. That was And that took hold and grew over a number of years and put a lot of kind of fiscal fuel into the fire of inflation. Right. And we don't have that right now. We have what were a couple one-time really large ramps in spending, but not a structural change to entitlements or some other things that would have potentially made things worse. Uh, so, so in terms of what the Fed has to do, um, they're ultimately trying to balance supply and demand while maintaining financial conditions that are um, consistent with a, a normal functioning economy. Now, what is the def- definition of normal functioning? That's that's a little bit up in the air, but that's what the Fed is trying to balance by raising interest rates. What they're saying today is the labor market is so strong because labor or unemployment is the other part of their mandate that was given to them by Congress when the Fed was established. They're saying the labor market is so strong, we can raise rates and tighten financial conditions here for a while before that meaningfully impacts unemployment. Right. And so, you know, I have my personal opinion on where that's going to be, which is what the market's already pricing in or maybe a little bit less. You know, the reality is all the debt that's in the system and some other things prohibit rates from getting maybe as high as as some people might like they to think that they should be um, just because those will be deflationary at higher rates, whether that's leverage from from real estate investing. I mean, a lot of activity will just naturally slow down. And so I think that's why we're in this period of what we would call slowing growth. Um, You know, we don't necessarily anticipate the U.S. to go into, you know, an immediate recession or anything like that. But it's normal to say, and it's natural to say in here that growth will be slower from here with with a tightening Federal Reserve um, in a pullback in spending than, than it has been maybe over the last couple of years. So in, in life, in financial planning, in keeping our heads above water, what would you say to the average American, just say the middle class, how can they become defensive in their own lives yeah. uh, when it comes to increasing prices, making sure that they are, they're surviving? Yes. This? So in the, in the near term, you know, the first the first basis of whether it's a budget or just thinking about your financial affairs is spend less than you make. It, at its most simple level, spend less than you make is kind of the starting point. If you're at spend more than you make, then grow the amount that you make or shrink the amount that you spend. Um, and so if you don't have that, it really doesn't matter whether you have inflation, deflation, stagflation, all these flations don't, don't really matter if, if you don't have that starting element. And then if you are already there in terms of you're your, your spending less than you're making, then it's a question of, you know, is your, is your kind of wage income structured in a way that it is keeping up with inflation? You know, are there different opportunities to look at there? And then our natural world, which is investing. 
Um, you know, if you've did a study looking back 30, 40 years, the assets that keep up the best with inflation are traditionally profitable cash flow, you know, oftentimes dividend growth stocks. Um, they've historically performed well in, in periods of inflation. And the reason for that is something is increasing in price in order to create inflation and companies make that something, whether that's gasoline, whether that's toothpaste, whether that's a couch. And so companies that have proven an ability to profitably operate their business have done so for a longer period of time and have pricing power. So that idea that even if prices were to increase on something, people are still going to need about the same amount of that product and they're likely to still buy that specific product. So maybe it's Coke and Pepsi. Um, those two, one, there's not really any others in the in the market. If there's not 18 Coca-Colas you decide from, if you want a, a Coke you know, type traditional beverage um, and people kind of like one or the other mm -hmm. and they don't, you know, may, maybe some people do, but nobody I've ever met said, well, I bought the Pepsi this week because it was 10 cents cheaper. Yeah. They're generally like, we're a Pepsi house or we're a Coke house. Yeah. And so, um, and so those are traditionally businesses associated with pricing power. And so owning a share or a part of companies with pricing power historically has at least kept you moving at the same rate of inflation if not even maybe benefiting as those companies are able to expand profit margins or do some other things within their business to cut costs, you know, increase profits, increase dividends, um, and benefit over time. That would be a really interesting story. You got me thinking on the side of how brand loyalty would affect your budget as inflation yeah. and prices go up. Yeah. Like what is that breaking point where you're like, well, I got to switch to RC Cola. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they call it, uh, the, the economists call it price elasticity of demand is what your microeconomics or macroeconomics, I don't know which one would, would teach you. And there's some curve that an economist will guess and everybody's going to be a little bit different. Um, you know, and so there's some amount where I guess it, you know, it makes you look around or yeah. say, well, I'll just drink the tap water out of the fridge. I'm not paying $5 for a two liter. Um, but but it's a super interesting thing to think about. And ultimately, for, for whoever's listening, just think about the things in your life that you would probably still purchase, yeah. even if they went up, you know, 6% per year for a period of time. And those are probably owned by the companies that have pricing power, if there are a lot of other people like you. And so sometimes it's as simple as that. Um, but it all starts from that basis of, of spend less than you make in order to give yourself the opportunities to keep pace with inflation through investing in other strategies over time. Awesome. Let's go ahead and take our next break. All right, we're back with Chris Hammond talking about fun stuff. We just knocked out inflation real quick. I mean, not not literally just talked about it. I think we solved it. I mean, maybe. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> you know, causation versus correlation. So yeah, exactly. Happens. If they pinpoint it to this conversation, we will be famous. I certainly hope so. That would be. We'll, we'll see what our marketing department can do to get us some better PR on that. If if it you know if it peaks right here. That's right. That's right. All right. So one of the things that you said earlier was uh, the the market pricing in where the Fed is raising rates. Talk to us a little bit about you know the 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 stock market as an indicator of the economy, mm -hmm. right? Versus or, yeah. or vice versa. Yeah. So there's two things to think about in terms of how the stock market informs the economy and, and vice versa. One is the stock market in terms of the companies present within the stock market has a lot different composition than the underlying economy. 
So if you were to look at, you know, sectors that employ a lot of people, and we saw this back with, with COVID when the stock market led the economy and it started performing better before, you know, GDP started picking up and before unemployment had come down a long ways. The stock market today, based off the S&P 500 and kind of the sectors within it, has a lot of technology. The reality is that technology employs a lot of people, but not 25% of the U.S. populace like you know, like the S&P sector weights might indicate. Likewise, there aren't a lot of publicly traded restaurant companies or, um, you know, kind of dry cleaners, or you could make up all these different, uh, come up with all these different businesses that employ a lot of people. And there's one to 12 of them in every single city and every single state and across the country, uh, but they're not really present by, by the stock market. And so one thing that will give a little bit of a difference is the stock market is reflecting the change in path in earnings and interest rates for the companies that are in the stock market, which is a little bit more weighted towards technology, which tends to be higher growth than, let's say, a restaurant. The second part is, and this is what I think makes investing in the stock market so difficult, because you, you a lot of people will hear this term, oh, it's priced in. And you can get to a spot where you're like, I guess everything's priced in at every point <laughs> at every day, but you know the stock market still goes down 30% at some point. So I guess it wasn't priced in there. <laughs> And the reality is what makes it difficult is there are so many investors in, this, in the stock market all expressing their own view, and that aggregates into where the price of anything trades at any point, which kind of reflects the, the together kind of the wisdom of crowds in terms of what prices should be based off whether they're interest rates, earnings, revenues, whatever they may be. And that stock market indicator is the most forward-looking indicator in the economy. Because if you think about it this way, whoever's buyer, buying and selling, you know, the way we work with clients is we're, we're planning for long-term goals and a long-term investment process. But there's also a lot of people that are buying it just because they think it's going to go up, whether that's one day, one week, one month, one year. And so you have people putting money on the line associated with the probability of whatever event they're, they're trading or investing against. And so it's natural that those prices are going to lead whatever GDP report that's going to come out three weeks after the end of the quarter, and there's all these other different sub-reports like a new order manufacturing survey from ISM that feed into all this data. And there are people looking at that every second, every day, every month, every year, and trading against that. And so it, in a broad level, you should expect the stock market to be an indicator of where the economy is likely to lead. And as a flip side of that, now, now you could be thinking, Okay, well, gosh, well, the stock market might be down a little bit. So it's saying the economy is going to get bad. So I should sell. Not necessarily the case because that stock market indicator is reflecting where we're at and likely to go based off the current set of information. And so you can, particularly when stock markets are down, whether that's during COVID, you know, the stock market declined more than 30% on the S&P 500. The market bottomed on March 24th or 26th. Yeah. Well in advance, you know, kind of giving an Allen Company example, most people were still working in the office yeah. when the stock market bottomed and then went remote in April. Yeah. And so the changes to the economy hadn't even really been made yet in terms of work from home and all these other things. The stock market had already bottomed because it saw the, the one, the fiscal stimulus that was coming in and a little bit better control in terms of understanding what this COVID thing is and that we were going to deal with it. Yeah, the technology that backed up the right. economy. And so it becomes a, a standpoint of much more, are things going to get worse than they're already projected to be? Which is, you know, when stocks are down 15, 20%, there can already be a lot of negative news priced in there 
that doesn't mean stocks are going to go down further. It doesn't mean they're going to go up back to where they were, 20% above that either. But, you know, that's the psychology of markets that's so hard to, you know, if you're looking at it every single day, every single minute, it can be so frustrating because it's so hard to dissect, you know, well, I think things are going to get worse from, well, the market's already expecting them to get worse. It's priced that in. And now are we going to be okay on the other side of that? You know, that can lead to, to stocks returning pretty well. And so, you know, kind of the last piece there is just that's why long-term goals are important. Yeah, I was about to say measuring your goals and your timeline of how, when you need those funds. And if you're in retirement right now and you're taking income, the thing that you have to think about is am I going to use my entire portfolio within the shorter time or the longer time? What do I need right now? So I was, I, I was watching um, – a video of a Coast Guard saving a boat. I don't know how it ended up in one of my social media feeds and it just attracted my attention. And I sat there and thought, because it was interesting at the top of the program you'd mentioned, we're going to try and, you know, go through some rough seas. And I was like, oh man, that's, that's awesome. Because when has panic ever, ever helped any situation, right? So had that person that was captain the ship that was in trouble, panicked and was like pushing away the Coast Guard, when has that ever been a good sound philosophy to take in in a in a stressful moment, right? And so, one of the questions that I, I want to ask is, how do we look at this portfolio, especially or at any portfolios, especially whenever one of the old adages was, when stocks go down, bonds go up. Mm-hmm. Well, right now, both of those places yep. have re- have had a pullback. Yeah, one of the most kind of wise things I've I've you know we're constantly reading and trying to educate ourselves based off what's going on today, but also, you know, instruct us from the histories, uh, you know, from the lessons of, of history. One of the best things I've read here recently was, you know, the primary risk in investment portfolio is when the duration or the time horizon of your investments doesn't match the time horizon of your goals. Yes. Or you change your time horizon in terms of how you think about your portfolio to be shorter than the time horizon of your goals. So if you're measuring your investment portfolio by every week or every day or every second, but your goals are the next 30 years or retirement that's not even going to start for 15 years, then you have a mismatch. And that's a recipe for, in my opinion, a low level of success with being a long-term investor. So let's take bonds, for example. If you own, you know, 10, 15-year bonds or an intermediate core bond fund, they are down significantly. The, the Bloomberg Barclays Aggregate Bond Index is off to its worst start in history from, from some data I saw uh, from, I believe, Bloomberg and some other outlets. Um, that's a difficult pill to swallow because, like you, you said, even if you look back in 2008, treasuries were up because yields had gone down. Yeah. You don't have that today. Now, stocks are down a lot less than, than they were during that period, but um, you're you're losing both sides of the coin. You know, the truth is only energy and commodities are about two of the only asset classes that are up. And some, you know, consumer staples and some other areas are, have pockets of, of things that have performed well. And so that's a difficult period of time. The flip side of that when it comes to bonds is it means yields are now higher. So if you don't need that income, if you, one, need that income today, you're still getting the same amount of income. The price has just gone down. Yeah, if you're taking the income from yeah. the from the yeah. actual bond. And if you're not taking that income, you can now, you know, in a dollar cost average approach, buy more shares with every dollar of income that you're getting, which over time will actually increase the amount of income your your portfolio is generating when you reach that point that you now need to draw on it. 
And so it's very difficult in the short term. Um, but over time, it's a positive dynamic. It's happened very quick. It's a painful process, but it's positive for future returns here moving forward. How much have algorithms helped us to to forward look at the economy and where it's going through the market? I mean, yeah. there's so many different AI programs that are leading the way in ETFs and within mutual funds yeah. uh, and just self-guided portfolios uh, rather than human sentiment. Mm-hmm. So I think there's two angles there. There's one, which is an algorithm to say, here's how your investment portfolio needs to look. Mm-hmm. And then there's the high frequency trading algorithms that are executing stock orders and shortening the time horizon because they're trading in milliseconds. And those can extend and exacerbate some of the moves that we see in stocks. So, you know, if you look at the futures in the morning and they're up a point and a half, and then with, by 930 when the stock market opens, they're down a point and a half, <laughs> and then they're down four, and then we close up. I mean, that is a nauseating ride for stocks. Um, and the reality is that some of that, while it's aiming for efficiency, the reality is there's maybe a liquidity mismatch there and some other things that will exacerbate the um, – volatility of stocks in short-term periods of time, particularly when there's high uncertainty. Um, that's why, you know, when we when we talk to clients, you know, let's let's say we're investing in, in individual securities, we're talking about the long-term future health of that company, the ability of that company to generate profits and, and oftentimes distribute those profits to shareholders in the form of a dividend that we hope is going to grow over time. And so, you know, we have to kind of sift through that noise Um, And then there's a lot of positives about algorithms in terms of understanding risk tolerance and the correct portfolio construction for any given client. Uh, They still have to deal with that short-term volatility. There's no way to to kind of clearly uh, prepare for that. But, um, you know, there's certainly a lot going on in that world. What would you – so there's an entire class of investors that have never felt this type of volatility before. They have come up in relatively clear, clear skies. For the last 10 years. I mean, that's it's had some volatility, but nothing really like this. What would what type of advice would you give them right yep. now? I think the most important thing always is understand your goals and objectives, be honest with yourself about what they are, and then to structure your investing process in a way that prepares and complements that. And if you do those two things, over time you'll be successful. And you should measure success or failure over the duration of those goals and objectives rather than in any any one moment. I think the the final part that's made investing more difficult today than it has been previously is markets are moving faster. Mm-hmm. Cycles are compressed. Yep. The historical business, you know, cycle was 3, 5, 7 years and we had a long period of growth following the financial crisis, but just in the last 2 years we've seen, you know, a strong economy, COVID, a lot of stimulus, a really strong economy, and now inflation, slowing growth, and a declining stock market. You know, the high growth areas of the market, you know, predominantly technology, a lot of firms that aren't profitable yet, you've seen losses not too far from the dot-com crash. In in that period, I think stocks in kind of the, the NASDAQ maybe is the, the right uh, benchmark for that time. It's probably a different benchmark for today. It took from, let's say, the summer of maybe late 99 into early 2000, and you didn't bottom until 2002. Now, we don't know when when growth stocks will bottom in this market, but you've lost in oftentimes or seen a pullback in oftentimes similar from just last October 
or maybe last February when GameStop was going on and a lot mm-hmm. of those things, that that was kind of the high in some areas and then followed in October. And so these cycles have just compressed. And so it means investors to meet their long-term goals are going to have to prepare for higher amounts of volatility and, you know, understand what cash needs they have at different points in time. And, you know, maybe 100% equities doesn't work when you have these different cash needs and there are different strategies to to prepare for that based off, you know, everybody's goals and objectives are, are unique. Awesome. Let's go ahead and take our last break. All right. We're back with Chris Hammond uh, with fun topics. <laughs> so um, they are. They really are fun. Yeah. This is, ex- you know, I think this is where portfolios are made. These yeah. These type of times right now, whenever you can lean in, and really focus and say, okay, what are my time? What's my timeline? What's my objective? What am I trying to accomplish here? And take advantage of moments appropriately, mm-hmm. right? I think this is where portfolios and really lifetimes are made. Disagree? Agree? I agree, hundred percent. Oh, fantastic! The the most, you know, historically, I think you know it'd be hard to put a number on it, but more money is made or lost by the decisions made in bad markets historically than those made in, you know, nice, smooth, calm seas where everything's generally moving in the same direction and that direction is up. That 2017 feeling? Right, exactly. (laughs) The decisions made in periods of time where it's really hard to own stocks uh, or bonds for that matter, um, ultimately, you know, in my opinion, matter more for for long-term success. So let's go ahead and talk about job demand because we got a little bit of time in this segment, you know, with, with, you know, it's still difficult to fill jobs, and the Fed is is taking that into consideration. How, how does your average American and business owner have a job to feel feel confident to fill those jobs yeah. right now with the way with the uncertainty that they feel in the economy? Yeah. So, I've got a couple interesting anecdotes. I mean, the reality is there's still a lot of jobs out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, and those are jobs from business owners that are ready to hire people and ready to put work people to work today. Now, if we saw a recession, would some of those jobs go away? In all likelihood, that that's kind of what a recession means. Um, but I think the couple things we've seen from business owners, I was actually talking to one here not very long ago who has some some experience in the food industry. And he said, you would, not ima- you would not believe the amount of investment that's going into automation, robotics in the, these industries, in the industries that historically employ a lot of people at a lower wage. So more blue collar type jobs, manufacturing being the, the primary example, manufacturing, processing. When you can't get people and the people that you can get are coming at a higher and higher price, that massively incentivizes investment in automation. And so as we think longer term, I think you're going to have long term less jobs available in some of these areas as the investments on that automation pay off and you ultimately need less workers. You could look at the difference in an auto manufacturing facility from, you know, let's just say 1950 to today. It's a lot less human involved and it's a lot more the person working the machine than the person doing something. But an optimist would say that frees up the human element to go do other things and create more innovation. Someone that would be stuck in that factory doing that job Absolutely. has now been propelled out Absolutely. before they even got there. I think the we may have used this on, an, on a past podcast. The, I, at one point, I tried to find in, in the historical example, when's the first time somebody made the claim that technology is going to replace jobs and there's not going to be enough jobs for people? And it's in the 1800s. 
and I think it was John Maynard Keynes. I may get the person wrong. He, sure. He's done a lot. And I was so, going to guess John Henry. Yeah. I mean, with the yeah, with the exactly. With, yeah, exactly. I mean, That's it's been in children's story. literature for how many ever decades? We watched that but, movie, Tall Tale. Do you remember that movie at all? Okay, anyway, sorry. <laughs> With my kids, but, they loved it. Yeah, but just to say, you know, before the steam engine, before industrial production, before automation, people have always said that, job, you know, there's not going to be any jobs. You know, th- th- we're going to be in a world where nobody has to work or nobody can work because there's so many robots. Like you said, innovation will create the opportunities. You know, I think the one thing is we think about policy. You know, we talk some about government. You could make a strong case for higher amounts of H-1B visas, which are skilled workers, Mm -hmm. or even just more allowed legal immigration, because there's this massive demand for a lot of blue-collar work, Um, and whether those are refugees or natural immigration. I mean, if I was a public policymaker, I would would suggest that now is one of the better times to be filling that. That would probably help inflation, truthfully, because you'd, you'd balance supply and demand more. Um, but we think it's going to be a tight labor market here for, for the continuing period. Um, but over time, as the Fed raises rates, we'd expect that to, you know, ultimately normalize over some period. And it feels like the, it's, it's the one place in the economy that has room yep. right now. Yep. And I'm not just talking about vacancies of jobs, but if, uh, re- if we go into a recession or if the Fed tightens things so much that companies just can't employ, yep. feels like we've got – yeah. some room to be able to yeah. to to, con, to constrain exactly. those areas. We are currently in the strongest labor market since maybe the 1940s. I mean, it's it is an in incredible amount of strength in the labor market and if people get to a point where with, you know, there's a lot of people that have retired cuz oh, I made so much money day trading. I don't need a job or I made so much money in crypto. I don't need a job or, you know, or just a lot of people retired early cuz they didn't like COVID and all these different things. I mean, there's a lot of room for uh, labor force participation to go up. And the labor market is very strong today. So whatever cracks we may see or tightening we may see or less businesses that want to hire, we're coming from an, a very strong foundation for, for the labor market. All right. I normally do not put constraints on you whenever I ask you these two questions, but I'm going to put constraints on you. Because the the news cycle is so busy and, and I, I can the, – there's clearly a dichotomy from what people are living – right, in where they are making money at their jobs or whatever they're feeling in their family life versus what the news is telling them to feel, right? So what are you reading or what are you listening to that's an encouragement to you? Yeah. So I actually started a book on my last podcast with you. I said I I wanted to start reading. I started a book by a guy named Morgan Housel that I might get the title wrong, but it's I think it's called The Psychology of Wealth. And it's just a lot of really interesting stories for how to think about these things we've been talking about, about planning, about all these different things. Um, and it's just it, – it really helps kind of gear your mind right. Um, you know, I think you, you could do another thing. You could read the Berkshire Hathaway uh, – annual press conference with Warren Buffett. I mean, there's no one from his op-ed in 2008 or 2009 talking about Buy American. Um, You know, there's nobody that's a better champion for all the great things that society is continually creating, you know, and um, and that's that's a positive. So uh, the next thing is, where are you most encouraged in the world around you? I think I'm encouraged by, you know, we'll take a current example. I am encouraged by the Western response to what's happened with the humanitarian Mm. political crisis in the Ukraine. Absolutely. We have a more united um, union with Western Europe and ancillary Europe 
within NATO than we've had in a long time. I mean, I'm a believer that um, self-determination of people is important, and the, the, the people of the Ukraine have, have the right to determine and defend themselves and all these things. And I think, um, you know, in my personal opinion, um, that a lot of people are on the right side of history with that. And I'm, I'm really encouraged with what's going on there, despite the massive tragedy of loss Man. and destruction and death that, that is currently going on yeah. over there. Yeah, it's hard to watch for sure. I really appreciate you taking your time, hanging out with me for an hour. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man, anytime. It's been fun. All right, to all of you listeners out there, I hope that you are encouraged by what you hear today and, um, and are moving in the right direction in your own lives. Go to our website if you want to uh, look at more of what Chris has to say, what I have to say, and what our colleagues have to say on allaninvestments.com. There's a lot of great articles on there, a lot of great podcasts. We'd love for you to go there and get a listen. And how can re- people reach out to you, Chris? Yep. You can call Allen Company and ask for Chris. I'm a portfolio manager and partner with the Allen Albritton Houghton Hammond Group. Awesome. Again, reach out to us at allaninvestments.com and have a wonderful day. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult with an appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Guests appearing on the show and their respective companies are not affiliated with LPL Financial and Allen & Company. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor. Member FINRA SIPC.